All right, I want to welcome everyone this morning. I usually say to our continuing study of the book of Acts, but this morning I want to welcome you to the conclusion of our study of the book of Acts together. It's taken us over a year to walk through this book passage by passage. If you have your Bibles this morning, I want to invite you to turn to Acts chapter 28. Acts 28. Join me as I call upon the Lord. Father, we come to you this morning, Lord, and as we were reminded earlier, God, we're reminded that you're a God of riches. You're a God of unsearchable riches. And you're willing to share them with your children. And you have shared them with all who belong to Christ. Lord, we read in Your Word of many different times where You say that the souls of disciples were strengthened. And that's what we ask for this morning, Lord. We are disciples of Jesus. We are followers of Your Son. And we desire, God, that our souls would be strengthened according to Your Word this morning. And we call upon You as our Father in Heaven, and we thank You, Lord, that You're not the kind of father whose child asks for bread and you give us a stone, you're a good father, Lord. God, we ask you to nourish our inner man this morning, Lord. Strengthen our hearts. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your faithfulness to use your word in our life. And we ask this morning, Lord, that You would make us partakers of Your steadfast love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin this morning by reading our passage together. This is Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 17. If you were to pay special attention to anything you would hear this morning by far... This is the most important words to take heed to. These are God-breathed words with no error. This is the Word of the Lord. Verse 17. And after three days, He called together the local leaders of the Jews. And when they had gathered, He said to them, Brothers, though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our fathers, Yet I was delivered as a prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. When they had examined me, they wished to set me at liberty, because there was no reason for the death penalty in my case. But because the Jews objected, I was compelled to appeal to Caesar, though I had no charge to bring against my nation." For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it is because of the hope of Israel that I am wearing this chain. And they said to him, We have received no letters from Judea about you, and none of the brothers coming here has reported or spoken evil about you. But we desire to hear from you what your views are. For with regard to this sect, we know that everywhere it is spoken against. Verse 23, 
when they had appointed a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in greater numbers. From morning till evening, he expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. And some were convinced by what he said, but others disbelieved. And disagreeing among themselves, they departed after Paul had made one statement. The Holy Spirit was right in saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear. And their their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. He lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to Him, proclaiming the kingdom of God, and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. This is the Word of God to Grace Community Church this morning. So we're going to bring our study of the book of Acts to a close today. And one of the things that I hope you notice just in reading the ending of the book of Acts is that it leaves us with many questions left unanswered. We're left scratching our head um, in some ways. There's some ways that this story feels unfinished. And we're going to get there as we close this morning. And one of the things that I hope you see is that this unfinished story, the way this story ends, it actually gives us a lot of clarity and encouragement to what our daily life as followers of Christ is to look like in this world. And so that's where we're headed, that there's some, intention, there's some intentionality in the way that this story ends like a cliffhanger. And so let's dig in this morning. Acts chapter 28, beginning in verse 17, the setting of the story is the city of Rome, the heart of the Roman Empire. The Apostle Paul is in house arrest awaiting his trial before Caesar. And we're told that three days after his arrival, he makes an intentional pivot to engage the Jewish leaders in this major city with the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, why does Paul do this? And there's a simple answer to that question, that one of the things that the New Testament reveals to us is a Jewish priority in evangelism. And Paul tells us this several different times in the book of Romans. He tells us in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he says this, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And that's the pattern that we see in the book of Acts, that the gospel makes its way to to a city. The gospel is offered first to the Jewish people. And after the Jews reject the gospel, the gospel is then offered to the Gentiles. There's a Jewish priority in Paul's evangelism. 
And getting even more personal that, than, than that, in Romans chapter 10, we're, we're made aware, Romans chapter 9 and chapter 10, that Paul has a tremendous personal burden to see the Jewish people come to Christ. These are his countrymen. These are, this is his family. This is his kindred. And so listen, listen to this. In Romans chapter 10, verse 1, he says this, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. That they may be saved. So Paul's gonna, he's about to engage the Jewish leaders in Rome with the gospel. And this is not a cold dumping of facts. So here's the facts about Jesus. Here's who Jesus really is. This is a burden that he's unloading to these men. He wants them. He desires for them. He's in anguish that they would be saved. So three days after he gets to Rome, even though he's in chains, he begins to seek to evangelize these Jewish leaders. Now surprisingly, these men don't know anything about Paul's case. Okay? They, don't, they, they hadn't got word, their, their mind's poisoned yet from the Jews back in Judea, back in Jerusalem, about Paul. They hadn't heard about his case. They hadn't heard about his appeal to Caesar. But one thing that they had heard about was Christianity. And so they're in the dark with the specifics of Paul's case, but they're a little bit suspicious about his Christianity. And we see that in verse 22. The Christian gospel, the Christian religion is referred to as a sect. And they say, well, we, know, we, we don't know the specifics about your case, but we know that everywhere this sect is spoken against. So they're suspicious. But they're willing and even eager to hear Paul's views. And so I want you to, to notice this wide open door that the Holy Spirit opens for the Apostle Paul when he gets to Rome. Okay, I want you to think about how awesome of an, of an evangelistic opportunity that this is. When, when we're talking with each other, and when we're praying and strategizing about how to bring the gospel to lost people, what we're usually talking about is, hey man, how, how do I get more around lost people? You know, how, how do I get around them? I want to get around them so I can speak the word of Jesus to lost people. And I want you to notice that, the, that almost the exact opposite is happening in this text. These men look at Paul and they say, we're eager to hear your views on this subject. We, we want to know what, what you think. And the text tells us that in great number, these men come to Paul's house, to Paul's house. How would you like that if somebody says, hey, how about I come to your house with a great number of people and we sit down for a few hours. You know what? Let's just take the whole day and you tell me everything you know about the gospel. Take as long as you need to. I want to hear your views. I want to hear your views. This is a wide open door for evangelism that is opened by the Holy Spirit for the Apostle Paul. And all this happens... The text says, on an appointed day. On an appointed day. So these Jewish leaders come to Paul, and what does he do? He begins to unpack the gospel, the glorious gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice a few things of how Paul did it. First thing I want you to notice, notice is that he uses the Jewish Scriptures. He uses the Jewish Scriptures, and we're told explicitly that he uses both 
parts of the Jewish Scriptures. It says that he, he, he teaches them both from the Law of Moses and from the Prophets. He's using the whole Hebrew Old Testament. And not only that, I want you to notice that he's using the entire day. We're told in this passage that he preaches from morning until evening. And so this is his method in verse 23. His method is exposition. Exposition. He's expounding the Word of God. Now that's a, that's a word you've heard with some regularity at Grace Community Church that one of the things that we believe about preaching and about pastors preaching God's Word is that it should be done expositionally. Expositional preaching of the Word of God. And all that means is that when a man of God stands before the church and opens the Word of God, his job is to say what the Scriptures say. To say what the text says. To pull out from Holy Scripture what is in Holy Scripture. His job is not to be creative. He's not to give you some hip sermon title with five awesome plans for the next week of your life. He's to speak the Word of God to the people of God. This is exposition. And this is what Paul is doing as he evangelizes these Jews. He's expounding the Scriptures an entire day. Okay, So you thought some of our services were long at Grace Community Church from morning to evening. From morning to evening. He is unpacking biblical text after biblical text after biblical text. He's saying what the Scriptures say, and then He's pivoting and saying, oh, by the way, this is about Jesus. This is, this is about Jesus. This too. This too. Over 12 hours of expositing the Word of God. Saying what the Scriptures say. And specifically, as this crowd is gathered in Paul's home, he's trying to draw their attention to this theme that's running through the Old Testament. And that theme is the Kingdom of God. The Kingdom of God. That's what he's pointing out. When he's going into the Scriptures and unpacking the Scriptures, what he's trying to get them to see is the Kingdom of God of God, and that these kingdom promises have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, the true hope of Israel. This is His method. This is His method. You could call this expository evangelism. Expository evangelism. Now, this is not new to Paul, because this is the same thing that Jesus did in Luke 24. If you remember that story. There are two men who are on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, and they begin to talk to each other about everything that had happened in Jerusalem. This is the day that the tomb was discovered to be empty. And these men are talking amongst themselves, and all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and Jesus begins to talk to them about the Scriptures and how the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, had been fulfilled in Christ. Listen to how it said in Luke chapter 24, verse 27. This was Jesus' strategy. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Now, several different times I've thought to myself, you know, 
out of almost anywhere that I, could, that I wish that I could be in the Word of God, just to see it happen. That's one of my top places right there. Imagine that. Imagine that on the road to Emmaus, that the author of Scripture begins to unpack the meaning of Scripture. Think about that. Think if you could have heard, this, this would have been Jesus' version of seminary. You get a better education in an hour of Jesus unpacking the Old Testament to you than years and decades of your life in our, in, in our modern day institutions. I've heard Ryan refer to this before as a resurrection seminary. This is what Jesus did. He begins to unpack the Word of God. And His move is this. Yep, that's about me. Yep, that's about me. Yep, that one too. Yep, I fulfilled that one too. All the Scriptures, the things that are concerning Jesus. This was Jesus' method. And this is what we see Paul doing in Rome and many other times in the book of Acts. When he evangelizes, he speaks Scripture. He speaks Scripture and Jesus as the fulfillment of of Scripture. Now, one of the things that this is a helpful reminder to us, and, and I mean, this is encouraging because this fundamentally changes the way that we think about and how we read the Old Testament, does it not? You see that? If, if you can preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, from the Old Testament, then that means the Old Testament is a Christian book, okay? Not just a Jewish book. That's the wrong way to think about it, that the Old Testament was the book that God gave to the Jews, but the, but the book that God gave to the church is the New Testament. That's the wrong way to think about it. The whole thing, Genesis to Revelation, is about Jesus. It's a revelation of Jesus Christ. And one of the things that we need to learn to do as followers of Christ is we need to learn how to read our Old Testament with a Christ-centered hermeneutic that we really believe this, that all of Scripture is a testimony of Jesus Christ. Fundamentally transforms how we come to the Old Testament Scriptures. We come to see glory. We come to see Jesus. Nourishment for our soul. And this is what Paul's doing. House arrest. Unpacking the Old Testament Scriptures. First, we're told that he... He, he exposits the law of Moses. Now, I want to mention the central theme that's running through the, the Old Testament. And this is the theme that Paul puts his finger on. theme of the kingdom of God. And this is the central theme in the Pentateuch. And that word Pentateuch just means the five books. The first five books of Scripture that was written by Moses. The Pentateuch is the law of Moses. In those first five books, Genesis to Deuteronomy, Paul begins to roll out these Hebrew scrolls and he begins to unpack things about Jesus from those five books of Scripture. And there's a central theme running through the Pentateuch that he's trying to draw their attention to. And I want to give you just an example. This is just an appetizer, like an hors d'oeuvre of what Paul would have, the kinds of things that Paul would have been doing that took him all day long. Okay? One of the things that God says in the Pentateuch, that he makes clear in those first five books, the books of Moses, is that Israel is going to fail to keep the covenant. He just tells them that. You're going to fail. You're going to fall flat on your face and you will fail to keep the covenant. 
But the Pentateuch gives us promises and hope. But that's okay, because God promises to act in spite of Israel's failure, and God promises to break in. He promises that His rule will break into human history, and that when that happens, He's not just going to rule over Israel, that the Lord God is going to rule over all the nations of the earth, and He's going to do it through His Messiah. If you had only the first five books of Scripture, you would know that this is God's plan. Israel will fail. God will, God will bring His kingdom. He will bring His king and He will establish His kingdom over all the nations of the earth. And I'll give you just an example of this. In two places in the Pentateuch, there's a phrase mentioned, and the phrase is, in the last days, in the latter days. And God tells us that He's going to do something very specific in the last days. In the latter days. It's in the last days, in the latter days, that God promises to send this appointed ruler. This appointed ruler. And so if you ask Moses, hey Moses, what's your eschatology? What's your take on how things are going to go down? Moses' eschatology is pretty simple. God's going to send a king. And God's going to rule over all He has made through that King. And all the hope of Israel is wrapped up in the arrival of this ruler. This is the kingdom of God. Kingdom promises. I want to invite you to turn with me to Genesis 49. I'll give you just an example of a couple of these. Before we even... Get out of the book of Genesis. God begins to shine forth this plan. Listen to this kingdom promise. Listen for dominion, ruler, king, kingdom type language. Genesis 49, verse 10, the Word of God says this, The, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Now think about how amazing that is. That there's a prophesied figure. We're not even out of the first book of the Bible yet. And there's a prophesied figure that's going to hold a scepter. That's what a king holds. And the Word of God says that scepter will never be removed from his hands. That's just a long way of saying he's going to be king forever. And then that verse promises that the obedience of the peoples, plural, that's the nations, all the nations of the earth will serve this king. This is a glorious figure, the prophesied one. And this is the type of thing that Paul is doing in that room. He's, he, he's pointing to these Hebrew texts and he's saying, this is what God said. And then, he's sh- and then he's pivoting to the Lord Jesus and saying, this is what God did. This is what God said. This is what God God has done. Promise made, promise kept in Jesus Christ. In the last days. Turn with me to Numbers chapter 24. Give you another example of this. Numbers 24, verse 17. Word of God says this, I see Him... But not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, 
and a scepter shall rise out of Israel, and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. So notice this. God's going to do something to where His king is going to rule beyond the boundaries of Israel. Beyond the boundaries of Israel. It's not just an Israel thing. This, this king is going to hold the scepter. Not now, not near. In the latter days. In the latter days. These are the Old Testament promises. Now, any faithful Jew who took God at His word, who believed the Scriptures to be the inspired, authoritative Word of God, they would have been looking for, they should have been looking for, a fulfillment to these kingdom promises. That God would send His King. So this is where Paul takes them. The law of Moses. And he doesn't stop there. He begins to take this theme of kingdom and king, promise, prophesied, and he jumps out of the law of Moses, and then he jumps into the prophets. And you say that you see the same theme in the prophets of God, announcing over and over again that there's a king coming. God promises to rule over all that He has made through His Messiah, through His appointed ruler. And there are many, many examples of this in the prophets. And I want us to put our eyes on two. Turn with me quickly to Isaiah chapter 2. Listen to the kingdom language, to the kingdom promises. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it and many people shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us His ways, and that we may walk in His paths. The Lord is promising this glorious kingdom where all nations will seek His rule. Seek His rule in the latter days. In the latter days. And then promises about this king and about this ruler get tremendously specific. Tremendously specific. This is just one example. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verse 6. Who is this ruler? Who is this prophesied one? For unto us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. That's the promise. That's the unbreakable prophecy that a baby is going to be born king. A little child will have the government, the kingdom, laid upon his shoulders. That text goes on to tell us that child's name will be Mighty God. Mighty God. And then listen to Isaiah chapter 9, verse 7. We're told this about this kingdom and this child. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal 
of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is just a sample of these promises that are made about the kingdom of God and God's appointed ruler that He would send. Just a sample. And Paul's message as he evangelizes the Jews is that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of these Old Testament kingdom promises. And listen, He fulfills so many of these promises that it takes Him morning to evening just to hit the bottom of it. Just to begin to unpack the the ways that Jesus Christ has fulfilled all the prophecies that God has made. He is the King. That's Paul's Gospel. He is the ruler. And when He came, the Kingdom of God arrived. Jesus Christ is King. He is Lord. He is the long-awaited ruler in Israel. He is the, the descendant of Judah that holds the scepter in His hand. And as we've read through and studied through the book of Acts, we see the kinds of things that happen when Jesus has the scepter in His hand. And what, what kinds of things do we see? Well, as early as Acts chapter 2, we see multitudes of people, and it says they're cut to their heart. When the Gospel is preached, multitudes of people, it feels like a scalpel just carved them in their hearts, and they fall to their knees in conviction of sin, and they begin to cry out, what must I do to be saved? That's the kind of things that's happening because Jesus is King. Because Jesus is enthroned. Because Jesus has the scepter in His hand. And so the book of Acts is chronicling, it's tracing the redemptive reign of Jesus Christ. When that scepter goes up, sinners get saved. He subdues human hearts. He's distributing repentance. He's causing conviction of sin to fall upon multitudes all across the Roman Empire. This is Paul's message. Jesus, He is King. He is the true and better David. The promised seed of David that will sit on the throne of Israel forever. And listen, His whole life, Jesus' whole life is a fulfillment of prophecy. His birth as the, the Savior King, fulfillment of prophecy. His death as the Lamb of God, the, the Lamb, the substitute of God that takes our punishment instead of us, fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53. His resurrection from the dead that shows Him to be Lord, Lord of all, the one who un, undoes all the curse of Adam's sin, fulfillment of prophecy. His ascension into heaven, His enthronement where He sits down at the right hand of God, Fulfillment of prophecy. His entire life is a fulfillment of the Word of God from cradle to to crown to cross. From cradle to cross to crown. Everything about Jesus fulfills everything that God has said. He is the point of all of Scripture and specifically the Old Testament. Now, would... We, we talked about being there on the road to Emmaus as Jesus was unpacking the Old Testament. And that gets pride of place. That's first place. But if you couldn't go there and you could sit under any other Old Testament teaching, I want you to imagine being in that room with the Apostle Paul. I want you to try to imagine that. 
how awesome this would have been to see these Jewish men, these Jewish elders and leaders, these are men learned in Scripture. And you see Paul set up shop, roll out the Hebrew scrolls, and begin to masterfully unpack the Word of God, the Old Testament. How would you like to do that? Sit at the feet of an apostle, an inspired apostle, as he begins to make connections all over the Old Testament Scriptures about Jesus Christ. Man, just to be a fly on the wall in that room, of all the, all the connections that would have been made about the Lord Jesus. This is His Gospel. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that God made to Israel. Now, Luke tells us in verse 23 that this is not just an academic exercise. You see what the Old Testament is really about? See what it's really about? It's really about Jesus. See, I'm right and you're wrong. It's really about Jesus and see, I'm right and you're wrong. That's not what it is. In verse 23, we're told He's trying to persuade and convince them that Jesus is the Christ. He's evangelizing them. And that means that if you could have been there, you would have seen something like this. You would have seen Him lean into this crowd and with a burden in His heart say, Don't you see, brothers? God is faithful. God promised the kingdom. God promised the king. Don't you see, brothers? God kept His word. Don't you see that God sent us Jesus? He is the king. Don't you see, brothers? He's trying to convince them that Jesus is the Christ. And we're told in this text that some of these Jews receive His teaching. Receive His teaching. I mean, this is what would have happened if we would have been there. It would have been mind-blown of all these connections in the Word of God that we've never seen before. And that mind-blown happened to a few of these Jews in that room. They received His Gospel. Their eyes were opened to Jesus Christ, Lord of all. But most of the Jews, Luke tells us, they rejected this Gospel of Old Testament promises made, fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that ought to at least make us pause and ask this question and think about this for our own souls. And the question is this, how in the world can a human being have that much light right in front of their face and not see it? How in the world could that happen? How, how can you be a Jewish leader and give your entire life to the study of Scripture and have a, a man of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, just tell you everything the Bible is about? How can you have that much light five feet away from you and yet not see it? How in the world could that be possible? And Paul's answer to that question is that these men have been judged by God. These men have been judged by God. I want you to see it for yourself from the text. This is how it could happen. Right in front of you and you reject it. Because these men have been judged by God. And this is why he quotes Isaiah chapter 6, verse 9 and 10. Paul says, The Holy Spirit was right 
and saying to your fathers through Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their eyes they can barely hear. And their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Now I want you to notice how he starts that quote. He says the Holy Spirit was right. And don't get this twisted. The Holy Spirit is never wrong. The Holy Spirit is always right. What Paul is doing is he's zoning in on one particular Hebrew text. And he's rubbing their faces in their own unbelief. And he says the Holy Spirit was right when he said this about you. When he said this about you. The rejection of the Jewish leaders in Rome, their rejection of Paul's gospel, is just like the Jews' rejection of Isaiah's gospel in his day. Just like that. A judgment has fallen upon these men. They have been judged by God. They have been given a dullness of heart. They have been given a dullness of heart. Verse 26 They will never understand. They will never perceive. You see that in the text? Whatever has happened to these men, the Word of God says they will never understand and they will never perceive. And I want you to note the finality of these words. It's a sober, sober judgment that has fallen upon these men. Because of their rejection, their persistence in unbelief, to take God at His word, a judgment has fallen upon these men, a judgment of dullness of heart, and the word of God says they will never be saved. They will never be saved. These men in this room that rejected Paul's gospel, they have been judicially hardened by God, and they will never be saved. And this is one of the things for us to wake up to and be aware of. That the Word of God talks about a judgment that precedes the final judgment. Did you know that? God promises to judge all sin at the final judgment. But many times in God's Word, we're made aware of this judgment that precedes the final judgment. Did you know that? That if you refuse, if you live in hardened rebellion to the Lord God, that He can judicially judge you, and you can have no more opportunity to respond to the Gospel. Think of how frightful this is. Think about how sobering this is. That a human being will never understand that they will never perceive. We're made aware of this judgment before the judgment. In Romans chapter 1, it talks about the wrath of God right now, already present tense, is being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. There's a judgment before the judgment. And when God judges us before the final judgment, what He does is He gives us over to our own wickedness. He gives us over. 
And that's what happened to these men. They're given over to their own unbelief. And they will never understand. And they will never perceive. Because of their dullness of heart. Now, this is a sober reality. And I want to tread very carefully here. Okay? Very carefully. One of the things that this shows us is it shows us a tremendous danger of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and rejecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's one of the things that ought to happen in your heart as you read a text like that in Scripture. One of the many things that's supposed to happen when you read this warning and this judgment in the Word of God You're supposed to think if you're an unbeliever and you hear the glorious news of Jesus Christ, you're supposed to be warned that if you reject it, you may never have another chance to respond to what Jesus has done. It's not promised to you that you can respond tomorrow. You may never have another chance to respond to the Gospel. One of the great lies in our day is the lie of delay. And if you remember a few weeks ago, Ryan called this soul procrastination. I think it was Agrippa that heard the gospel, and he's, yeah, kind of interested in a few things, but he's unwilling to respond, repent of his sin, and put his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he, he, he shows suicidal tendencies with his soul, with this procrastination. And the under, underlying lie that someone who procrastinates with their soul, the underlying lie that they believe is that they can come to Christ on their own timetable. I will come to Jesus when I'm ready. I will come to Jesus when it's convenient to me. I will respond to the gospel when, whatever it is. I'll come on my own timetable. That's the, that's the underpinning lie of soul procrastination. And the truth is that you can come to Christ whenever you want to. That's the truth. If you want to come to Jesus, you can come to Jesus whenever you want to. But here's the reminder from this text. God can do something in your heart where you'll never want to ever again. Hardened by God. Hardened by God. Never understand. Never perceive. Therefore, you never turn. Therefore, you're never saved. Never saved. And this passage reminds us that there comes a time where God can give you up to your unbelief forever. Forever. Now I want to tread carefully here. Because one of the things that almost always happens is somebody begins to ask, well, am I that person? Am I beyond hope? And the answer to that is if you want to come to Christ, come to Christ If you want to come to Jesus, this is not you. The judgment has not fallen, and you still got time to come to Christ. But this is a sober warning that a judgment can fall, and you'll be given over forever to your unbelief. And I just want to close with with this before moving on. If this is you today, If you are at Grace Community Church and you are not a Christian and you have been hearing things about the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, I want you to know 
that the only safe response for you is to come to Jesus Christ and do it now. To come to Christ now. To come to the Lord Jesus now. And I want you to ask yourself this question today. What are you waiting on? What are you waiting on? What's holding you back from turning away from your sin and putting all your trust in the Lord Jesus? What are you waiting on? Ask yourself that question. Are you waiting? Is it this? Are you waiting for God to hate your sin more than He already does? Is that what you're waiting on? you got no need to wait on that. That the God of Scripture hates your sin. It's offensive to God. He's a holy, holy, holy God. Do you not understand that the Bible promises that there's a day coming where Malachi says it's burning like an oven, where all evildoers will be made stubble. Psalm 7 tells us that the God of Scripture, every single day He's angry with the wicked. Are you waiting on Him to become more angry with your rebellion? You see how foolish this is. What are you waiting for? Or ask yourself this question, are you waiting for God to love you more than He already has? Is that what you're waiting for? The Christian Gospel tells you that the second person of the Trinity was incarnate, took on a human nature, lived a perfect life, the life that you should have lived. And He took sin upon Himself and He died as a sacrificial substitute under the wrath of God. As a demonstration of the love of God. Are you waiting for God to do more than that? Are you waiting for God to love you more than He already has? What are you waiting for? Come to Christ. Come to Christ. Romans chapter 5 tells us that God has demonstrated His love for us and that while we were sinners... Christ has died for us. The only safe response for you is to come to Jesus and come now. Come to the Lord Jesus and do it now. Sober warning in this text. Three days after Paul arrives, this meeting, this evangelistic encounter is called with these Jews. And then in verse 30 and 31, We're told what happens over the next two-year period of Paul's life. He spends the next two years in-house arrest evangelizing. How awesome is that? Two full years under house arrest, but a steady stream of people coming to him and saying, Hey, by the way, can can you share that message? I've heard some other people talking about that. Can you share that message with me? And for two years, I want you to notice that his message doesn't change at all. Look at what it says, verse 30 and 31. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and he's teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness. Same thing he told the Jews, kingdom of God is fulfilled in Jesus. It's the same thing he's telling everybody who comes to him. Proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is where the book of Acts ends. Two years of house uh, arrest evangelism, and then not a word about anything else. Not a word about anything else. Jesus told him that he would bear witness in Rome, 
And this is the fulfillment of that promise that he is bearing witness to Jesus Christ in Rome. And so here, here we are. Okay? If there's ever a cliffhanger ending in the Bible, this is it. Right? We've got all kinds of questions floating around in our minds that are not answered by the ending of this book. And the first question forefront is this. What happens to him? He's in jail, been moving towards you know, Rome, all kind of trials in his way. He gets to Rome, he's in house arrest, he's preaching the gospel, not a word of anything else. What happens to the Apostle Paul? Luke simply doesn't tell us. He does not tell us. If we jump into extra-biblical sources, historical sources, which we're jumping into a whole other realm of authority, extra-biblical material doesn't share the attributes of Scripture, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, sufficient, none of those things. They're just historical sources. But these historical sources, collectively, they give us a sketch of what happens in Paul's life. And this comes from a historian, Tacitus, Clement, Eusebius, and others. And if you stitch their testimony together, you come up with a story something like this. That Paul was released from prison. After these two years, he was released from prison. And then he enters into another period of missionary expansion in the western portion of the Roman Empire. And this is the period, if you've ever read 2 Timothy, and, it, and it's Paul's deathbed speech, he's about to be poured out like a drink offering. Almost certainly it was during this period that Paul wrote the letter of 2 Timothy. So he's released from Rome, at least that's the tradition. He preaches the gospel in the West, which is exactly what he tells the Romans he wanted to do. He wanted to go to Spain. He writes 2 Timothy. And then within a two or three year period of his release, Paul was rearrested and martyred by beheading under a great persecution led by the Emperor Nero. And this would have been around 67 AD. Now, these are fascinating bits of history, extra biblical history, and they're probably true. They're probably true. But I want you to scratch your head for a little while this morning of, well, why did Luke not put that stuff in there? You know, If I was writing it, I would have put it in there. You know, But, but Luke's writing it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He does not tell us what happens to the Apostle Paul. And one of the things that this shows us is that Luke's got a different agenda in the book of Acts than we might expect. You could say it this way. In the book of Acts, Luke is far more interested in tracing the unstoppable progress of the gospel than he is in giving us Paul's biography. He's got a different agenda than what we might think. And one of the ways that we're keyed in on this agenda is with this recurring phrase that shows up periodically in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, And the Word of God increased Continually. Acts chapter 12, verse 24. But the Word of God increased and multiplied. Acts chapter 19, verse 20. So the Word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. You see what he's doing? He's tracking the expanse of the Christian Gospel. 
And so think about this two-volume work, Luke and Acts. This thing began in a nowhere town, okay? Nazareth and, and Bethlehem, on the edge of the Roman Empire. And things fast forward to the end of the second volume, and by the end of the second volume, the Word of Jesus Christ has birthed a worldwide movement across the Roman Empire. He's showing us the triumph of the Gospel. This is what happens when Jesus reigns at the right hand of God. The Word of God increases. The Word of God multiplies. And so this brings us full circle. The book of Acts ends like a to-be-continued episode on a TV show because it is a to-be-continued episode. It ends like to be continued because it is to be continued. The Word of God is destined to reach the ends of the earth. This has always been the mission straight from the mouth of Jesus. Listen to Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be My witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And to the end of the earth. And so the next stage, we live, just just for a little wordplay, we live in Acts 29. We live in the to be continued. We live in that Word of God with a Spirit-empowered church going to the ends of the earth. And the book of Acts ends with an incredible promise in verse 28. And I don't know if I've ever seen this promise as clearly as I have this week. Incredible promise in Acts 28. And this is the promise that provides clarity and encouragement for what our daily lives as Christians ought to look like. Ought to look like. And so the final word in the book of Acts is not that um, rejection of the gospel that we just talked about, the final word is about the acceptance of the gospel. In verse 28, the Jewish rejection has opened the door to Gentile salvation. Gentile is just a word that means nations, all nations. Jewish rejection has led to Gentile salvation. Listen to how Paul says in Romans 11, verse 25. He says, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers, A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. It's come in. And brothers and sisters, this is our our encouragement. This is where we live. We live in Acts 28.28. We live in a time of harvest. Jesus tells His disciples to open your eyes and see the fields are ripe for harvest, we live in the time of this all nations harvest, this in gathering. We live in the time period where salvation has been sent to all nations of the earth. And is this not encouraging? We need our eyes open to this reality. Salvation has been sent to all nations, and they will hear. You see that in verse 28? They will hear. Salvation has been sent to the nations and they will hear. The sheep must be gathered. The sheep that belong to Jesus Christ. 
the elect. In the words of Romans 11, the fullness must come in. And this is the day that we live in. How exciting is that? That we live in a day of salvation that cannot fail. All who are destined to belong to Christ will come to Christ. The fullness will come in. They will hear. Listen to how John Stott summarizes this. And this is where we're headed this morning. He says, The acts of the apostles have long finished, but the acts of the followers of Jesus will continue to the end of the world. Do you catch that? The mission of Jesus Christ is to be continued in your life, believer. The mission is to be continued in your life. You are the instrument through which the Word of God is destined to increase and to multiply and the Gospel go to the ends of the earth. We live in a time of salvation to all nations. And I want you to think about that promise in verse 28. I want you to think about how much encouragement is in those words. They will listen. They will listen. Do you know... One of the biggest fears we have for evangelism is, I'm going to tell them and they're not going to listen. And the Word of God says, yeah, that's going to happen, but guess what also is going to happen? They're going to listen. This is a full-throated promise of guaranteed reaping in this age. Do you see it? They will listen. Salvation has been sent to all nations, and this is a promise in the Word of God of a continuing response to the Gospel in every generation. Nations will come to Jesus Christ in every generation of church history. They will listen. And what this means is that we're a part of a mission that has guaranteed results. Guaranteed results. You think about when you're thinking about making a wise investment. I mean, a wise investment is like a, a, you know, a 99.5%, yeah, this is going to turn out good. Do you understand? This is 100%. It cannot fail. You give your life to the mission of Jesus and they will listen. They will listen. The Word of God will increase and you will reap a harvest. You will, you will bear fruit for the Lord Jesus Christ. They will listen. The results are guaranteed. It cannot fail. It will not fail. I want you to think about how much encouragement is there for for the taking for us when we think about the bookends of Acts. How it begins and how it ends. And there's two things that frame this book that God wants you to know as followers of Christ. And these are like prophetic rocket fuel to drive missions. You You think about this. I mean, think of what's going to happen in your life if you begin to feed on these bookends. Think about how much different your life is going to look. The bookends of Acts. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. God wants you to know that you are empowered by the third person of the Trinity to preach Jesus Christ. You will receive power. You will be His witnesses. You have the Holy Spirit of God at work in your life to proclaim Jesus Christ. Think of how much encouragement is there. Think of how much empowerment is there. Just as we awaken to those promises, the Spirit of God has been given to the church 
for the express purpose of pursuing this mission. And then we come to the end of the book of Acts. Acts 28.28 And God wants us to know, not only have we been empowered by the Spirit of Jesus, He also wants us to know that people will respond to the Gospel. People will respond to the Gospel. That's the bookends. Gave us the Spirit, and the results are guaranteed. And I want you to think about never doubting the power of the Gospel of Jesus Christ on your lips. On your lips. Not just on mine. Not just on other members of this church. Think about the power of the Gospel of Jesus on your Spirit-filled lips. They will hear. They will listen. I want you to think about how much different your life would look if you grabbed a hold of those realities that you've been empowered to this mission. And God has promised results. Promised results. Mission of the book of Acts is to be continued. And every believer has a role to play. One of the things that we believe at Grace Community Church, and we believe that the Scriptures teach this, is that every disciple is a disciple maker. Every disciple is a disciple maker. Every Christian has a role to play in this all nations mission. We believe that teaching comes out of Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, which speaks to our role as leaders in the church is to equip you, the saints, to do the work of ministry. Every disciple, a disciple maker. And as we're left lingering over Paul's example in the close of the book of Acts, one of the things that this final passage exhorts us to do, every single one of us, is to bring this prayer before the Lord. Lord, make me more faithful. Lord, make me more faithful than I am right now. Make me more faithful, Lord Jesus, than I am right now to get these God-breathed words into the ears of lost people. And don't doubt the power of that Gospel on your lips. God, make us more faithful. Here's a closing thought for you to consider as we wrap up the book of Acts. Each one of us is going to spend our lives on something. And the encouragement here is that we would spend our lives on what cannot fail. They will listen, cannot fail. Listen to the question posed in Isaiah 55, verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. This is the righteous path. This is the good path. Path of fruitfulness to Jesus. Every disciple making disciples. Final exhortation as we wrap up the book of Acts is for every member of Grace Community Church to spend some time personally alone before God praying that God would not allow our time in the book of Acts to fall to the ground in vain, but that He would be pleased that it would bear fruit in our life. And that we would be found more and more faithful to sow the seed to seek out the lost, to make disciples of all nations, that He would help us, that He would strengthen us, to leverage our lives to make Christ known, and that many would hear. Let's pray.
Father, we thank You for Your Word. God, we thank You for Your kindness to us as a church. Lord, You preserved us, God. This whole time, Lord, we've walked through this book that You breathed out and that You still breathe out. And You preserved us, Lord. We, we call upon You now. God, we ask that You'd make us faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. God, we ask You to help us, Lord. You warn us about things in Your Word that You call weeds in our life, Lord. Thorns and thistles that choke out the Word in our life. And God, we pray that You would tear those things away from us, God. And Lord, I pray for myself and for all the brothers and sisters here. Lord, do whatever it takes in our life to make us faithful followers of Jesus Christ. Whatever it takes, Lord, that we would seek first the kingdom of God and and Your righteousness. Help us, Lord Jesus. In Your name we pray. Amen.